Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Krishnan Shakravarti. In addition to being an anesthesia and pain boarded physician, he's also a PhD in microbiology and immunology, and he studied extensively at the CDC in their influenza division down there in Atlanta. Uh, we're going to talk a bit today about his research, some of the cool stuff that he did and saw at the CDC, and some of the things that we can glean from the H1N1 pandemic of 1918, and what we might learn about COVID as a result. As always, thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to have a guest back from episode 59, Dr. Krishnan Chakravarti. Dr. Chakravarti, in addition to being an anesthesia and pain boarded interventional pain specialist and serial entrepreneur and nanotechnologist extraordinaire, also has extensive experience in studying uh, influenza and uh, a lot of work at the CDC that uniquely positions him to uh, talk about kind of the things we're seeing right now with COVID and the the ties that it has to the H1N1 pandemic of 1918 and what it might mean for the future of interventional pain and the future of our society. We've got a lot of great stuff we're gonna dig into. So Dr. Chakravarti, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Justin. It's always, uh, I really enjoy coming back. I mean, I um, had a chance to share all my personal experiences last time on the entrepreneurship side, but um, really this uh, this was my, life's work for that three years in the lab. So happy to talk to you about all the stuff that I did with CDC, et cetera. Yeah, so obviously for any of our listeners, you can go back to episode 59 and hear more about uh, the personal side for Dr. Chakravarti. Maybe you could just give us a brief overview of sort of your current uh, professional and clinical undertakings and then we'll talk about that time at the CDC. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I'm, um, so I trained, uh, so I did a whole MD PhD program and uh, a lot of my PhD work, I actually trained as a viral immunologist, and it's um, gonna, what I'm going to tell you is how that bridges into anesthesia. It's really a fascinating story of um, science and serendipity. Um, right now, actually, I have a really cool practice. I uh, see both patients at the university as well as at the VA San Diego Healthcare, and about 50 to 40 uh, percent of my time is dedicated to a pretty robust active clinical trial. Um, we do a lot of different startups. Um, and so, you know, it's, you know, at the heart of what I'm going to convey today is how powerful translational research is. And one of the consistent themes that um, we are starting to witness is history repeats itself. Um, it's fascinating. Human beings, you know, we think that um, we are inventing something new for the first time, but the reality is that most times is not the first pandemic in human history. And certainly, um, I think one of the other major lessons that we are starting to learn is as our population continues to grow and we are interacting with the environment in a very different way with deforestation, with the amount of um, exposure to different types of uh, wild animals, as well as things that we are looking at, um, the concept of novel viruses, novel um, types of zoonolysis, which is the definition of viruses that come from a different vector to humans, is going to be a bigger and bigger issue. And I, I think what's fascinating is that whether you're at an individual person looking at the effect of the pandemic on your life 
all the way to from a countrywide level to the world level, um, the lessons are pretty consistent. It's in, and the things that they learned in 1918 to a large extent sets the precedent for all of the public health measures that we should be adopting. Um, and I think it's really a, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. So looking forward to it. Yeah. So um, maybe to, to start off, tell me about how you got interested in like immunology and virology and how, how was it the MD PhD and time at the CDC? I remember you saying in our last interview, you sort of, I think you carved your own path and maybe people didn't love it because you were not sort of uh, fitting the mold of the, the normal trajectory. So tell me about how that unfolded. Yeah, so it was interesting. I um, came into grad school with really an interest in tumor immunology. I really wanted to study cancer and I was um, interested in looking at how uh, the immune system to helps in fighting cancer. So at that time we had uh, four, four of us that were applying for different labs. And of course the MD-PhD director, Dr. Paul Knight, who, um, you know, probably one of the single most important influences in my life career-wise, um, he always says he got the booby prize of getting me as the graduate student because <laughs> the person that I wanted to work with, uh, Dr. Dick Bankert, um, at that time took my close colleague and friend, Jen. So I was like, oh man, I can't get into that lab. And he's like, oh, all right, Chakravarti, you can come into my lab. Um, <laughs> So his, his is, the story is really interesting. So what happened was in the 80s, um, he's an anesthesiologist and he was doing peds anesthesia. And at that time, um, he made a really interesting observation. So he was looking at kids that had um, RSV, respiratory syntitial virus, which causes a lot of upper airway uh, problems in kids. And what he was observing was that if you put these kids on anesthetic, for whatever reason, they wouldn't develop secondary infections. So that was odd. Why would anesthesia have anything to do with infections to bacteria after viruses? So he kind of published this first um, paper probably in the late 80s, early 90s, and he got totally uh, shunned by the anesthesia community because people were like, well, what is this guy saying? If somebody has active airway disease, the first thing we think about is to cancel cases. Are we proposing that maybe anesthetics could be protective against viruses. So I, I got in the lab and he's like, look, I know you're not studying cancer, but here's, you know, why don't you look at this immunology model with anesthesia and look at it in the flu model? And I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of interesting. I mean, this might be a totally different question that we don't really relate to. And I was thinking more translational as an anesthesiologist that I, at that point when I was in medical school, that was one of the things I saw that he had really bridged that gap between his clinical and research. So I was like, oh, this might be a great field to uh, consider. So we started doing some of the work. And um, the fascinating part was like, I started with developing an animal model and we really replicated a lot of the flu infection model pretty consistently to what you see in a human, human model today. And so the first, uh, you know, people in, in all, always talk about this when you're in science, there are moments where you're like two o'clock in the lab and you're like, man, this is the moment, Eureka. So it took me a, literally a year to establish this model. I set it up and um, finally I came on this very interesting observation. So I was inoculating these animals with flu and then I would give them a secondary infection insult, looking at the effect of the anesthetic in reducing incidences of like bacterial, improving bacterial clearance. So around two o'clock one morning, um, we're testing and testing and you, I mean, uh, 
poor animals. You go through so many by the time you actually <laughs> run the experiment that you want. And you think like nobody's paying attention to you as a graduate student. So you're finally in the lab. I'm counting some colonies and um, fascinating. So the animals that had the anesthetic were completely not sick. So they wouldn't actually have any of the symptoms that were displayed by animals that were getting the flu. And essentially they were able to combat the secondary infection way better. So it all of a sudden was like, wow, Eureka moment, like his observation clinically was translating to something I was seeing in a, in a very controlled setting. Hmm. So I took that idea and we started to really um, explore history. So what happened was what people don't really realize when you go back to the 1918 strain, um, when they actually dug the patients up, what they found was it wasn't ever influenza that was a primary cause of mortality. It was actually bacteria that would grow out of these lungs of these patients or, and especially in the military barracks where the 1918 strain really spread, it was really secondary bacterial infections that were the primary cause of mortality. So what was happening was at that time, the advent of antibiotics and distribution of that was a major limiting factor in combating Spanish flu. So the, the idea that you know, we could combat pneumonia wasn't actually really well established and the public health guidelines and measures weren't necessarily set. So in, in this model, from a scientific perspective, what we started to realize is that if you temper the response to any viral infection in the initial point, you actually cause a significant protective effect to the host to any kind of secondary insult. And mm -hmm. so I took that concept and then I went to CDC. And at that time, um, man, it, it's amazing experience because you get to work with all of the, um, some of the most lethal pathogenic strains in the world, including Hanta, Ebola, uh, the 1918 strain. So I was like literally living in that, you know, the contagion movie with Dustin Hoffman and the, yes, it's exactly like that. So you're in before the whole, we, before we get to the CDC, I, I want to yeah. hear more about that, but I want to go back to this sort of this time yeah. of testing. And then I was really interested. You said you went back what, when you sort of made this observation about uh, these animals that were responding really well to the secondary infections, your, your instinct was to say like, let's look at historical incidences that have been similar. Yeah, I, I'm curious, kind of, is that, first of all, is that like a normal second step or, or what made you want to do that? And how did you land on the, the Spanish flu pandemic? Yeah. So, you know, I think, um, so, you know, at the heart of translational research is the idea that as a clinician, you can take an observation and apply it to the broader story. And the, the truth is that a lot of people understood that bacterial pneumonia was the most common cause of mortality, even from the 1918 strain to fast forward to every other pandemic that happened in history. Interestingly, this is not the first instance that we've had pandemics. You look at the Hong Kong flu, you look at bird flu, and you hear a lot of this concepts of like what they define as cytokine storm, which is this mm -hmm. significant upregulation of inflammatory things, activity. But essentially, you know, I'm a big proponent, and I think we've had past conversations about this, you got to apply research to the ultimately to individuals in the clinical setting. That's what really separates translational scientists. So I, you know, at that time when I was a clinician, when you're studying a problem, 
I had to feel like I could understand the relevance of it to the larger population. And when you look at historically where flu has been as a both a seasonal and a larger infective strain, I mean, it's one of the most common issues that we deal with. I mean, seventh leading cause of death at one point is influenza and bacterial pneumonia. So um, the history served in reinforcing this concept that what I was doing in my model, the observations that I was making was at least consistent and reproducible. Hmm. Is it, I guess what I'm asking also is like, it, would, would others in your situation kind of made that same connection and say, let's go to the history books and see where else we can find something that looks like this? Or was that sort of something that you had deduced? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say both ways. I, I kind of feel like, do people spend the time really looking back into history for evidence? Maybe, maybe not, but that's just been, I kind of was looking at it in that approach. But I, I guess it's a good point because I looked at the 1918 strain and then part of what prompted my ability to want to test it at the CDC was knowing that it had an effect that was on a local seasonal strain. What if it could really have an impact on kind of a strain that could cause so much devastation to humanity? Um, yeah. So yeah, in some way it's serendipity that I, I kind of look back through all of that data, but it was certainly, um, it, it made a lot of sense at that time. So then you're down in Atlanta yeah. and uh, I'm, I'm curious, you know, is there like a big vault that like swings open? There's this light and like dry oh. ice kind of like mist that comes out where they keep all the really crazy stuff or what's that like? <laughs> yeah, so that's the very least of it. So there's actually, so what happens is the CDC, there's about uh, 23 to 27 buildings. Incredible. That you don't even actually see on any of the actual maps. You get there, the campus is like adjacent to Emory. Um, I was working for the influenza division. So um, everything from the ferret models all the way to the less BSL-2 containment. I mean, literally the suits, retinal scans, folks wow. on top of the building, you cannot avoid it. I mean, it, essentially it is like high level uh, protection of all of these strains, um, but fascinating. I mean, amazing experience, the level of uh, rigor, access to tools. I mean, they have state of the art, uh, tools for studying genetic expression. So at that time, um, Dr. Sambara, who was now kind of the head chief of the infectious disease for influenza at CDC, he was like, look, um, I love this concept. So I have this theory that uh, we may be able to genetically create a therapeutic target that's universal to different flu strains. So he's like, based on your work, maybe we could adapt that uh, theory into some form of consistent genetic strain that maybe could be efficacious for secondary infections as well as the primary infection. So um, we ended up testing a lot of the human cell lines with, uh, with the 1918 strain and amazing. So we were doing a lot of uh, what were called gene therapy and uh, nanomaterial delivery of those gene therapy targets for actually looking at seasonal pandemic flu strains. So hmm. um, yeah, it was, it was something else. <laughs> so just because I'm curious, for something like the, the 1918 strain, yeah. how, does that, how does that end up in a vial in a freezer 102 years later that, that we can st still access and test and, and run experiments and things on? Yeah, you know, you would think that uh, these things would disappear, but the reality is a lot of the gene sequences were already preserved. So they actually coded a lot of the high path strains. You know, 
and, and this is where it's, it's an interesting conversation. So should research in such like uh, potential scary strains exist, but a lot of the potential therapies that come from it are because they've been able to preserve some aspects of those virulent strains that you study today. Um, so all of the smallpox, anthrax, I mean, all these things that we think about are high lethal biowarfare agents, um, we study them all the time. I mean, as long as you have strict regulations, which uh, they do a phenomenal job. Um, yeah, but you know, you look at some of these movies, they're, they're not completely yeah. accurate. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. First of all, how, how was your time there? What, uh, what was it like using those types of tools, having everything, all the cool stuff at your fingertips and being able to just dive right in? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you can't compare. I mean, one of the few places in the world that is as equipped, as forward thinking, as, uh, I mean, some of the most intelligent people studying infectious disease were, were, are at the CDC, and it's a culmination of that. Uh, and I, I think just the, what it's really impressive is the amount of thought that goes into folks that are focusing on health officials that really think about not just um, today, but what to plan for in five, 10 years. And, you know, one of the things we, looking at the current uh, kind of pandemic, there is a tremendous amount of knowledge that drives how fast innovation happens in terms of vaccine development, in terms of new drug development. So people think it's, oh, it's just serendipity that we think about all of these different ways to target COVID. But the truth is a lot of that preface work was done by scientists rigorously in other models that yeah. has led to, I think, arguably some of the fastest drug and vaccine candidates that we've ever seen. Um, and so I, I think what you appreciate is how much cross-disciplinary work happens at the government level um, that happens in partnership with universities. So, um, you know, it was, it was a life, once in a life experience from that perspective. Yeah. So as you look back at the 1918 experience, and think about the similarities, you know, between that strain and that public health experience and that historical event and sort of the, the cycle that it, as it unfolded, how does that map onto our current experience and what does it tell us about what might happen like next month or next year? Yeah, great question. So look, I, I mean, I think one part of it is, let's talk about, I, I split it into what we think about therapy development and then the social measures and public health measures. So what people learned in 1918 um, was that social distancing was highly effective in curbing spread. So what happened essentially in the 1918 model was that you had military barracks where a lot of people were in close proximity. And you hear a lot of infectious disease experts even talk about the classic analogy between Philadelphia and St. Louis. So back then what happened was they had the, during Philadelphia, they had a lot of the parades in immediately after the World War looking at bringing people together. And St. Louis at that time was very strict on those guidelines. So when you talk about, you know, you look at this, uh, you hear all of the epidemiologists talk about this rise in the peak to how fast that happens and comparison of the two different states and why public health measures like social distancing, contact tracing, which is essentially testing somebody and isolating them for the effective incubation period 
how important they were in laying the groundwork for why public health measures work in reducing morbidity and mortality. Now, what I think the other part of that lesson is people keep saying that COVID is 200,000 deaths, 7.5 million people. How bad is it really? How bad is it? I mean, seasonal flu affects 50,000 people every year in deaths. So are we that much worse off? The problem that people don't account for is the numbers that you see is a reflection of active intervention through social distancing, through masking, through all of these things. So if you let this run rampant, naturally the mortality rate will climb. So that's the challenge for most people because they, they look at the hard numbers and they don't really reflect on what is, this, what is the public health mitigation strategy that leads to that effective statistic. And the other part that really um, is critical in that is it's not just the peak. It's the how fast you rise to the peak because it's really a matter of utility usage of resources, right? So at that time in 1918, part of the reason why the second wave was so disastrous is because by that point, you were overwhelming the health system. So I think a lot of times people forget that. I mean, I think we are fortunate that in 2020, we've come where technology has advanced much further, but the essential lessons are the same. I mean, things spread, contact tracing, social distancing, all of these things were lessons we learned from that aspect. The second piece of this is that I think very interesting, which um, is a part to where I think the future of therapy in this uh, with COVID is gonna be, is that what we noticed in our research was that if you wait out, when is the most severity for the disease is seven to 10 days. That's typically when influenza essentially destroys a majority of the lung through a robust immune response. And you have a essential environment for bacteria to outgrow. Now, you could say, well, the most lethal strains of flu don't actually cause as much devastation. Because if you commit the host to significant injury right away, you don't have as much spread. So this is why they talk, virologists talk about H0 and how effect, infective a viral strain is. But essentially the point in that is earlier intervention in terms of diagnosing an infection through immunomodulation may actually have an impact to the morbidity somebody is facing at 7, 14, 21 days after. So the, the hypothesis being that if you can actually curb the initial response, maybe you may be able to mitigate some of the downstream effects. And that's a really interesting paradigm because we talk about one aspect of testing being contact tracing and social isolation, but maybe is testing going to have a role potentially for future therapy development where you can have earlier stage interventions in patients potentially mitigating long-term morbidity. Hmm. So what would it look like if we were able to sort of take that concept and systematize it and roll it out scalably right now? You know, create that earlier intervention that you're describing. How, how in a perfect world, how might you see that sort of evolve? Yeah, yeah. You, know, I, you know, I think the challenge, challenge is that, is that uh, I'm getting yeah, some getting some there, but so I think the challenge is like, look, you if you, in a, in a perfect world, contact tracing means you would test everybody. If you were positive, you would be isolated. If you tested 
positive and had some form of um, viral sequelae, you would end up put, be put in uh, the appropriate isolation techniques for both aerosol as well as inhalational contact. But that, that can happen practically because there's obviously so many restraints to the economic pressures that's reality. I mean, we look at how you compare a university pain center all the way to a private practice center and the pressures of what COVID did to one versus the other. But the truth in the matter is that I think we goes back to my feeling that people say, if I'm not, if I can't do it the hundred percent, is is any bit of benefit garnered by at least attempting some of the social social distancing strategies? Sure. I, I think the concept of wearing a mask is a classic example of that. I think there's clear scientific benefits to wearing a mask. You're effectively preventing the spreads of that droplet to the surrounding environment. So to me, I think if if we could have it ideally, and the the reality is that as we learn more and more about COVID, maybe certain drugs are going to be more germane. But if you, you know, at the end of the day, what's ultimately the treatment for flu? It's supportive care. Meaning you don't go in every time for treatment when you have influenza infection. You pretty much hydrate fluids, stay at home, and you hope your wife is nice enough to make you some chicken soup or whatever you decide to do. But essentially the point is that the testing needs to lead to some form of active intervention. And I think we're not really quite certain how, you know, we're still starting to learn the, the kind of effect of COVID short and long-term on folks and based on age and demographic. That being said, we have to err on the side of being more precautious. And I, I think that testing is a critical component of that. Uh, do you expect waves of this to happen as public response continues to be maybe not quite coordinated or, or yeah. how, how, what do you think the next six to nine months is going to hold? Yeah, I think it's challenging because, you know, some people said, um, you look at the 1918, 1919, uh, it's two years. So it wasn't really, it wasn't actually the first wave that was bad for 1918 strain it was a second subsequent wave of influenza infection. So the challenge with viruses is that they have a, in almost an inherent mutation rate. So you can create some form of response, the faster they mutate, the more foreign they become. And again, you're kind of essentially creating a response, an antibody response to that new infection. So I, I think if people think that COVID is going to be a short-term issue, I don't see that happening. I think we are looking at probably an impact that is going to extend all the way through next year. And I, I'm still thinking that, you know, a lot of that impact we're still trying to sort out. Uh, We've already seen a large part of our life changed. I mean, I think the amount of access to certain types of um, things that in a social setting has drastically changed. Vaccines, probably. I mean, I think best case scenario, everybody says something different, but vaccines, not just you have to test their efficacy and safety, um, but you're really looking at distribution. And that's a huge undertaking. Who's going to be the first to get it? Can everybody get it? How effective is it? Um, do we have a good incidence of understanding the benefits of it? So I think nobody's going to doubt the benefits of vaccines, but it's really a part combination of not just effectiveness, but distribution and use. How, how soon from now do you think you'll be getting a vaccine? 
At what point would you be comfortable like getting in line at CVS for that? I, I think, you know, my, my thought is that um, as healthcare workers, we have a responsibility to protect our patients as well as uh, other colleagues that are in the healthcare place. I think if, if all of the infectious disease and public health experts recommend that there is a good vaccine that should be taken, I think it should be the responsibility to get vaccinated. I think that um, we have seen the benefits of it across multiple platforms. And I think good science and data should drive decision-making. So uh, from that perspective, I, I think that it's, you know, we follow the guidelines and rules set by folks that are experts in the field. If you think about, and, and we'll wrap up with this, if you think about uh, the, the way that, you know, this has impacted the, the practice of medicine and even yeah. just the way that society is existing right now and physicians are, you know, wondering when, not when we can get back to normal, but when, when are we going to be able to have a sort of practice of our specialty that is like no longer dominated by a fear or an awareness, a co- like a constant vigilance of trying to manage this situation? What how does your experience and your research shape the way that you're thinking about that question and what it's going to mean for practice of, for example, pain management or whether it's anesthesia and the OR? Yeah. How is that um, going to evolve, do you think? You know, I think, look, um, I think every thing that sometimes we think is a bad thing can actually be a, um, a lesson for change and something in good good can come out of it. It's hard to imagine something from a pandemic that could be good. But, you know, I think we've learned a lot about um, from a society level, from an individual practice level to how we respond to these type of situations. And one of the things that I think has really spurned is the impact of technology and interaction between physicians and patients. Nowhere in history have we seen such a uh, almost an acceleration of things like telemedicine, things like a, a component of interacting with somebody long distances without even being able to have the physical interaction. You know, medicine in its heart used to be this idea of the empathy and being the touch or the feeling of the doctor and uh, patient touching as a part of the therapeutic and the healing part of it. Is that dynamic going to change the way we think about care? I mean, I, I think Certainly a lot of pain doctors across the country have been implementing telemedicine very successfully. Um, you know, I, I think the other part of that is we've seen how much emphasis in digital education. And I think you've been a big champion of this, like, you know, an amazing job with the amount of content that you put out. I think it's here to stay. I think there is the idea of doing conferences in a different manner and the idea of even talking about COVID our first webinar at ASPN, we had about 1,800 people log in. Yeah, and so it's, it's kind of amazing the breadth and reach you can essentially have if the digital platform is done in the right manner. So um, I, I think that the entire care platform for pain, pain physicians across the country is changing. Uh, we're just gonna have to adopt to that. This is uh, an interesting time, no doubt, in that way. And, and there's also a lot of opportunity, you know, for innovation and uh, creativity. And uh, that's, that's when, like, lasting change can be catalyzed. So it's exciting in that way. And as much as public health crises are obviously not something you ever wish upon society. Right. So. Well, Dr. Shakarvathy, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks. Thanks, Justin. Much appreciated. 
If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.